Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right. Thank you very much for everybody coming tonight. Welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. Uh, I'm Steve Kenyon, um, and uh, my wife, Amber Kenyon, is uh, my technical uh, expert here. I also call her my tech nerd, if anybody cares. We are happy that everybody came out tonight. We're going to I've got a special guest tonight, uh, Dr. Chris Nichols. I'm very excited to, to listen to her uh, information. I've seen her quite a few times, and it is so much fun every time I've, uh, I've gone out to see her talk. So really looking forward to that. Um, when we start out here, i got to give some recognition to a couple of sponsors, uh, the Gateway Research Organization and the Grey Wooded Forge Association. Um, they are uh, sponsors for us for all, for all winter here, I guess. And they're what makes this possible. So a uh, big thank you to them. Uh, Brenda, you want to give a wave? She's representing Grey Wooded Forge Association and Amber for the Gateway Research Organization. And we had uh, Jay on here too. He's also from Grow. Where did he go? He, he, he turned off his video, I think. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for those. There's Jay. And I guess I'm uh, uh, Steve Kenyon. I'm with Greener Pastures Ranching. I guess I'm a sponsor as well. Um, we've been uh, a part of this uh, the whole winter as well. Um, we do uh, some on-farm consulting, or I guess this year it's only uh, webinar-based consulting. So if anybody's interested in that, that uh, is available as well. So just the way the format of the evening, um, we're going to take some questions. Uh, this is just a networking session. This winter has been nothing but online conferences and seminars, and to me, they've been so impersonal, right? They'll, they'll. You know, when I've been the speaker on them, I'm talking to a blank screen. I don't even know who's in the background, and there's a, you know, the odd question that gets thrown at me from the moderator, and I don't even know who's asking the question. So it seems so impersonal, and then they just end it, and it doesn't seem right. So at a regular conference, we're out networking and we're around the coffee. Uh, coffee pot and and having lunch together and that, that networking is half the education of conferences so we decided we wanted to start up this networking session so there's no presentations uh, Chris and I are going to do a little bit of an intro on the topic and then we're going to just start taking questions so for now please keep your mics off and we're going to have some discussion when it's your turn if we're going to take uh, questions in chat in order uh, when it's your turn, we'll ask you to turn your video and your audio on, and we can actually have a, a verbal conversation back and forth about the question. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great. We've already had some great reports back about people, you know, getting hired hands and interns and and great uh, conversations that have happened because of this networking. So we're we're really and happy with that. That because of the networking too, we have a new bale grazing video on YouTube. Um, bale grazing on cropland, and Ward Middleton is actually online right now. But he that's on our YouTube channel, a Gateway Research Organization. Oh, a little plug for her latest video. That's allowed. Perfectly allowed. And plugs are allowed in chat too. If you have something, you know, a topic you want to share, you're more than welcome to throw that into chat. From that, um, I am going to kind of kick this off. I guess uh, we're going to talk about some soil health principles. Uh, I know Dr. Nichols has six soil health principles and how that is affected by some of the products and some of the things that we're using in agriculture today. So I'm excited about that. Now, I know there's a lot of different schools of thought out there. Um, they're all pretty similar. We're going to keep that out of it tonight. Um, we're just looking at all of the main principles that would help keep your soil health healthy. 
um, your soil organisms to, you know, your chemical, your physical and your biological properties of the soil. That's, that's what, you know, a healthy soil is. So I'm really excited to get into this tonight. And I'm going to let Chris kind of introduce herself a little bit and kind of introduce what she thinks the topic's uh, about tonight. So Chris, go ahead. Um, yes, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to be a part of this networking conversation and do want to echo keeping it very conversational. Um, so I think that that's a great way to go about doing things. And I really appreciate everyone who's in attendance and the time that you're taking to, to join this networking. And um, I'm Chris Nichols. I uh, am a recent import to Alberta. So I just moved to Old Alberta a little over a month ago, originally from the US. And I've, uh, I'm a soil microbiologist. Basically, I tell people I fell in love with a fungus when I was 19 years old, and I have yet to fall out of love with fu said fungus. Um, that fungus is mycorrhizal fungi. And so that really has become a lot of the framework for the perspective that I take. It isn't saying that the mycorrhizal fungi are the only thing that's a part of what's happening, but what it has helped me to recognize is this great level of diversity that we can have within our systems. And so, you know, we want to keep this conversational, but uh, one of the things, and so I'm going to, I'm going to go off here and I'm not going to do a presentation, but I uh, want to share my screen if possible. And I'm going to share a slide. What I'm trying, what I'm going to share here is just this idea that uh, Steve mentioned on talking about the principles for uh, regenerating agriculture, regenerative agriculture. And what I look at, the way I look at it, is what we're doing is really trying to regenerate the soil. And so this isn't as much from an agronomy perspective as it is from a soil perspective. And so what we're looking for, the label on the slide is the brown revolution. This whole idea of focusing on the soil, not the next green revolution or focusing on the plants, but we're focusing on this idea of utilizing eco-functional intensification approaches to really help with the economic and environmental um, sustainability and options within our systems in order to be able to look at carbon flows. And so these six soil health principles that I put together, many people talk about four soil health principles or five soil health principles. I have uh, taken the perspective of a microbe and in taking the perspective of the microbe, I think that there are six soil health principles. And so in this image that I have, I've basically put these six soil health principles into a pyramid design. And I've done that intentionally, not just because it's a, it's a cool looking graphic that you can have, but I've done it intentionally from a pyramid perspective because when we think about pyramids, the pyramids have stood for thousands of years. And what we want to be doing with regenerating soil is not just celebrate um, century anniversaries as, on, on your farm or ranch, but we want to be celebrating millennial anniversaries on your farm and ranch. We want to make sure that, that we're continuing with regenerating the soil and continuing with uh, agricultural production for millennial years. And, and so, you know, looking at this from that perspective of being able to have your farmer ranch stand for thousands of years. So that's the first thing in talking about, you know, a pyramid design. But the other reason for looking at a pyramid design is when you think of pyramids, 
our, our first intention is we'll look at this, you know, with the, the capstone that's at the top and you'll look at the foundation of the pyramid and you think of this from a little bit of a higher hierarchical perspective. So, you know, each layer, one is more important than the other, but for a pyramid to actually stand for thousands of years, every stone that was a part of the pyramid, the tools that we use to address these principles, and every one of these principles is interacting with each other. And they're, they're placed strategically to allow to help to support the layers above and the layers below. And the layer, the rocks and the stones to the side of them as well. So it's thinking about how we can have these very integrated tools be put into place. And so what I've done with this, with this pyramid is I've got six layers within there, but they're all interacted and, and interrelated. So we're talking about the, the main four that are frequently discussed are maximizing photosynthesis or carbon flow, keeping living roots growing for as long as possible, having diversity both above ground and below ground. And again, this interaction goes with this because if we're maximizing photosynthetic activity, keeping things growing, we're gonna automatically have a greater level of diversity because we can't just have one plant that's gonna be growing almost every day of the year. We're gonna have a diverse number of, of plants that are gonna be a part of that system. The other one that is oftentimes discussed is reducing or eliminating disturbance or tillage. And I changed this to disturbance from tillage because it is looking at all different types of layers of disturbance that we can have. And we can utilize that, um, the tools that are a part of disturbance, the tillage tools or animal traffic or human traffic, uh, machine traffic, all of those things can be a part of the disturbance. That doesn't mean, again, I have reduced or no, because it doesn't mean that we have to absolutely eliminate disturbance completely. We can actually use disturbance as a tool to help with regenerative practices and help with regenerating soil on occasion. We also want to be able to protect that soil surface. So we were discussing uh, early on where Amber and Steve down by Pincher Creek um, had a huge dust storm that uh, they, they basically had to try and navigate their way through because of the wind that we had. And if we have that protection on the soil surface, that's going to help to reduce that level of erosion, but it also is important to reducing the impact of solar radiation that's actually breaking down organic matter at the surface as well. So we wanna be able to look at how we're managing um, the protection on the surface. But the two in the middle are kind of relatively new ones. Um, one that we talk about sometimes that's oftentimes added is this whole idea of managing livestock. I put in here managing animal impact because it isn't just about the livestock that you may be bringing on to the farm, but it also is about managing birds and bats and bees and other insects, as well as managing wildlife so that we can actually look at the impact of the whole entire system on regenerating soil. And then the last one that I've got there is the whole idea of reducing or eliminating inputs. And the idea with, with the inputs is that we wanna have a system that has a certain amount of stress on the plants and a certain amount of stress on the organisms that are all a part of that system in order for them to perform at their optimum level and to increase their efficiencies. And if we put a lot of inputs into the system, 
that is going to off that is going to outsource the jobs of a lot of the microbial community. So if we add a lot of fertilizer and the microbes are a part of bringing fertility to the plant, if the plant doesn't need the microbe to do it, it's not going to feed the microbe. And so you're going to start losing those functions that you might very well have. And that's also going to help us with helping to manage pest and disease relationships. So I wanted to kind of put this out there just to get us, I'm not gonna go through a big long presentation with this, but I wanted to put this out there so to get us in this context of thinking about the soil like it is uh, the thing that we're really trying to generate and think of it from the perspective of the micro. We wanna be able to have this environment that's actually going to be working with improving the efficiencies of the microbial community. And how is it that we can go about doing that? So I'm gonna uh, stop sharing and we can go ahead and, and start talking. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Um, the one thing I forgot I was going to mention, if anybody is, uh, you know, Chris is famous because now of Kiss the Ground as well. She was one of the people that was showcased on the movie Kiss the Ground. So uh, I was absolutely very impressed when I saw you pop your, pop onto that one. I was like, that that is awesome. We've got a great representative there. So uh, very excited about that. Uh, Amber, how are we doing? Well, we have a lot of questions coming in. I didn't know if you wanted to add to that at all, Steve. Or... Yeah, no, I'll, let's just get to questions. <laughs> okay. So the first one is from Brian English. Brian, are you ready to go? I know you usually are. Maybe he's not. So Dr. Nichols, I have been following regenerative ag practices for the past seven years. And I am wondering if, if we have had cattle grazing, can we significantly reduce our nitrogen fertilizer? Yeah, I, I think that we can do that. And, you know, we're getting nitrogen fertility, not just from the manure that we get from grazing and um, the action of the microbes in the other communities that are working um, within that system in response to the animals grazing. But it also is one of the things where as we stimulate the microbial community, we have many ways in which we can get more nitrogen in into the soil environment. The microbes are gonna respond again to the plant's needs and demands. And it isn't the case that we just have to get nitrogen fertility from manure, but we can also get free living nitrogen fixers and we can have symbiotic nitrogen fixers. So the microbes themselves are gonna be fixing nitrogen. In addition, the microbial populations, as I said, it isn't just what they're um, gonna be doing as far as managing the manure, but the whole impact of an animal grazing is gonna stimulate a community of organisms that now can work on processing organic matter constituents, proteins, and amino acids, and more complex biomolecules to break that down and release nitrogen. So there's a lot that we can get uh, nitrogen fertility from in the system if it is that we're managing that correctly. I can add to that, the air we breathe is 78% nitrogen. Right. There's lots of it around us. We just need the, the biology to get it for us. I mean, we, we're recycling nitrogen through the manure, but that's recycling. It's not necessarily adding new nitrogen to our system. So it's going to depend on your, your, your setup or your context, right? Are you a annual cropper? Are you a perennial pasture? Or are you, you know, are we exporting nutrients off of our land or are we recycling it in? Um, but we need to build a system where the biology are happy. Right. I, I call them my employees. They work for room and board. We've got to get that biology built up in our system. And then they give you all the nitrogen you need. 
right? It's there. It's every breath we take, there's 78% of it. We just need the biology there to get it for us and bring it in for us. So we all know about legumes. Uh, you know, they're they're called the nitrogen fixing plants, but they're not really. It's the 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 bacteria associated with them that actually gets the back the nitrogen, and they they trade it with the plant for a molecule of sugar, right? It's this this underground black market all the time that's trading back and forth. So um, if we design a system allowing you know, the, the biology to be happy and healthy, then we shouldn't need to add any fertility. And uh, I know, I know Chris has uh, said it lots of times before you start adding in free fertility. We put the, you know, the biology out of work and uh, you know, that that's not a healthy situation either. I mean, if the plant doesn't need the, the, the fertility, then there's no reason for to give sugar to the microbes and the microbes will die off. So we got to keep this whole system working together in balance. So thanks, Brian. Next up, we have Karen Lindquist. Uh, hey, Chris, nice to have you on here. Um, I have a quick question for you. I was just wondering if you kind of a shift in gears um, away from, from what we talked about before. Just, I'd just like you to talk about the uh, old, old so, so, soil health paradigm versus the uh the brand the kind of the brand new and the current one but um just just talk about it. i'm not sure exactly how to ask it but i think you know <laughs> um well i i hope that i know um i i guess one of the things that i think for for us in some of the old soil health paradigms or the old soil science paradigms was really this idea that we couldn't do much to change what our what our soil looked like. We couldn't change organic matter. Um, we can't grow topsoil in our in our lifetimes. There's just no way in which we can really change the system that we have. What we've got is what we've got, and we just have to add a lot of inputs into the system to get it to function because we don't have any choices. If you're missing something, you just have to put it in. But the the paradigm is shifting with leadership with re, um, farmers and ranchers that are putting in regenerative types of practices and with researchers that are asking some different questions. And so one of the things that we've been finding is this whole idea of challenging the assumption on organic matter and organic matter is supposed to be this very old recalcitrant types of materials that's highly decomposed and it takes a really long time to form it. So again, we can't change organic matter percentages in our lifetime because we don't have the time it takes to make these highly decomposed materials. And one of the things that has changed with that is that as we've taken some research tools and been able to take a greater look at organic matter, we've started to see that organic matter is really something that is biologically, chemically, and or physically occluded labile organic matter sugars and carbohydrates and proteins that are going to be processed by the microbial community and transformed into versions that are going to be more resistant to ready, easy decomposition. And so we can start to build up organic matter because we are reducing the decomposition rate of these really what are normally considered to be very simple carbon compounds that 
oftentimes we've thought of them in the past that they just get broken down very quickly and go back up into the atmosphere of CO2. And what we're trying to do is actually get the biology to work on, on that organic matter. And, you know, in some cases it's a physical occlusion where they basically put that organic matter inside soil aggregates. And we know that inside soil aggregates, the organic matter is going to be there for decades as opposed to uh, decomposing on an annual basis. And in other cases, some of the organic matter becomes part of their bodies. And so one of the other things that we're talking about looking at um, with these organisms, you know, Steve mentioned that they're kind of his, his workforce and we've got, you really have the largest workforce on the planet. Um, trillions of different organisms that can be out there, you know, even numbers that are at numbers that are astronomical, hard for us to be able to imagine that can be out there in the system functioning. And their bodies, just like ours, have a carbon framework to them. So when they die, their bodies become part of this stabilized organic matter. Um, in addition, they produce uh, waste. They produce other types of molecules, um, exudates that they're giving off. And those are also going to be things that are going to be these uh, more recalcitrant types of organic matter. So what we're doing is we're changed, we're challenging that paradigm that it's gonna take a long time to be able to change organic matter percentages and that we're actually utilizing more directly the power of photosynthesis to be able to grow organic matter and build up carbon and to grow topsoil rather than having it be all a part of a decomposition process. And that's the, the paradigm that existed before is everything's about the decomposition and breakdown of materials. And, and um, with growing topsoil, it has to migrate up to the surface and all of these types of things. And what we're looking at is really regenerating from capturing that sunlight and going back down into the soil and how we can be able to do that. So. Hopefully that was the sort of the soil health paradigms that that you wanted me to address or or do you have anything more specific? Yeah, kind of it kind of was about that but um I I was thinking about you know two they never back then they never really um accounted for uh the fungi the fungi fungal in the soil the that love that word, the our vascular mycorrhizal fungi, you know, they, they never, never accounted for that. So, and I think now, because we now know a lot more about how the fungi connect to the roots and how the hyphae basically transport nutrients and water to plants, then that kind of really puts a challenge on, on the old thinking that, that, um, plants did it all themselves, you know, no, when in fact it was these microorganisms, um, both bacteria and fungi and archaea, um, were, are very important for plant health and for basically for feeding them. Yeah. And that's, you know, we, again, some of the things we do a little bit in, in our own, um, hubris and to our own detriment, where we think that we know how to do this better and we know how this is all going to work. So, so we're going to add the fertility that the plant needs and we're going to make sure that we've addressed all of those issues. But there's so much complexity to what's happening now that it's so difficult for us to be able to figure out how we would go about addressing it. 
Um, we look now to see that it, it's not just the numbers of organisms that we have or the millions of different species of, of different individuals that you have, but it also is this whole idea of the interactions of these organisms and the communication that they have, this incredible communication network that is out there, kind of like the network that we have here, you know, that we've got people on this network from, from all over the world. And it's that type of a communication that's happening where we're networking all of these different plants and animals and, and microbes into the system that is so incredibly complex that, you know, we're just beginning to learn about, um, you know, to kind of to follow up on that. I, I oftentimes tell people that I, when I started as, a, as an undergrad at the university learning about soil microbiology, we thought we knew about 10% of the organisms that were in the soil. We could culture them, identify them. We knew what we, they did. By the time I finished graduate school, that number was about 0.1%. So I, I, I went to 12 years of higher education to become 100 times stupider than the day I walked in the door. But I think that that's important for us to recognize. And I know that number keeps going down. We keep learning about that. You know, we talked about, we were, we used to talk about there are, you know, millions of different species of bacteria and hundreds of thousands of different species of fungi. And just recently, they're talking now about at least between uh, two and a half to 6.2 million different species of fungi. Um, so, you know, our, our, our knowledge, as, as we learn more, we, we, we find out that we know less. And so working with those complexities is really what we need to be doing. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. I'm from Stetler, Alberta, by the way. And Amber asked me to say we're a your neighbors. Thank you so much. Thank you. From for me to add to that, Karen, uh, from the layman farmer's point of view, uh, I went to college and I was shocked. Or looking back at it now, I'm shocked about what I didn't learn. Right? I didn't learn about how to how to have a negative water cycle. I mean, I learned about the water cycle, but not that the fact that agriculture is causing a negative water cycle. I learned about, as Chris already talked about, how how we're going to build soil by leaving residue on the top. Right. And you're not going to build change it very much in your lifetime. Nobody told me about exudation, right? How we can build soil underground through the root systems. How come I didn't know about that? Now, you know, going back, that was 94 to 97, I guess I was in college. Um, mycorrhizae fungi, they didn't even really know much about it until the mid 80s, I believe. Is that right, Chris? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It, it really started to get growth and understanding then yeah. and application to agriculture. So it was pretty new back then, but there was so many things that I didn't, you know, I wasn't taught because I mean, whatever it, it there's a, there's a, a drag or a delay in, in education, obviously, but um, there's some very important things that, that we got to catch up on in, in agriculture. And I still think that a lot of the education in agriculture is still teaching the old way, right? There's so many, there's so much more knowledge I've, I've acquired after college. Uh, about, you know, real life, what I'm doing on the farm um, compared to what I got from there. So I think we just need to, you know, move forward and, and start learning this new new information and, and keep keep driving forward all the time. 
Awesome. I love hearing about the interactions in the soil. I had the chance to go and visit the Kara Soil Health Lab, and I know Yamali Zabala is on the channel here. And it was so much fun to hear her talk about the interactions with the nematodes that she watches under the microscope. Like, I, I thought it was just fascinating that these things are happening almost the same as they happen above ground. They're, they're happening below ground, too, which is really cool. Uh, Shorty, you are up next. Good evening, Chris. Good evening, everyone. Coming from Thorisby, Alberta, just southwest of Edmonton, so not too far away from you, Chris, now. Um, I've asked this question of several researchers, including Yamili, but when seeding companion crops with cash crops, should we be seeding the companions in the seed row, next to the seed row, or in an intersecting seed row? This is all mainly just to make sure that we get a lot more diversity and really ramp up that whole system. Um, well, that's it, it. That's an interesting question, and I guess uh, my my first answer is I don't think we really know if what the what the level of benefits are for those different locations to to be seeding companion crops. I think the the biggest thing is that we seed companion crops and that we work with trying to, as you said, increase the diversity. But in increasing that diversity, what really intrigues me too is all of the things that we're seeing happening with plant-to-plant -plant nutrient transfer and plant-to-plant -plant signal transfer uh, through the microbial networks. Again, this whole networking thing that can be happening. And although most of these activities are happening within the rhizosphere and, and just a couple of centimeters away from the roots, we do see that things like the mycorrhizal fungi and other fungal hyphae in particular can stretch across miles uh, within, within the fields and, and be able to have interactions from different plants that may be more spatially distributed. So, you know, one of the things too that in, in working with producers, trying to encourage them, not just in, in adding the diversity within their rows, is if, if that seems like too much of a challenge or you're too worried about the stress that a companion might make on your, on your cash crop, um, doing some things where you're uh, potentially alternating strips of different crops. So you do a seed pass of one crop and then you do a seed pass of another crop, um, you, you know, doing those types of things. So, so having those strips that might be there, um, doing some different things too, where we were discussing some issues with growing canola and canola is typically non-mycorrhizal. How can you keep, instead of having that year off for the mycorrhizal fungi, how could you keep that going? So can you go through and pour um, strips in the field, again, seed some strips of some highly mycorrhizal crops. It doesn't have to be your whole field. It doesn't have to be alternate strips, but it acts as these shelter belts. The same thing is true for doing some things with pollinator strips and being able to put those into your field where you've got, you know, again, it doesn't have to be every part of your field, but maybe in certain areas. And when I'm talking about things like ecofunctional intensification, Part of this is, is sort of this idea of precision agriculture where you look at different areas within your field that are functioning slightly differently. You have areas in your field that are highly productive and areas in your field that aren't highly productive. Are there ways in which we can intensify our production on those highly productive areas? And then in those areas, instead of spending money on cash crop seed in those areas that aren't as productive, can you put something in that actually is going to be beneficial to your cash? 
cash crop. Again, you know, if it's a non-mycorrhizal crop, putting in something that's mycorrhizal in those in those areas in your field, maybe putting those into a perennial landscape, maybe, you know, allowing for um, pollinator strips to be there, allowing for strips of plants that are going to attract predatory insects. Some of these things that we can do, uh, again, when I'm talking about managing animals, managing things like um, birds and bats, are there ways to be able to have strips in there that are going to be attracting those types of animals and allowing for attracting it in a way that now looking at directions from average wind direction that you may have in your field. And so how that might be managing the the flight of the bats and the birds. And so putting those strips in there so that you're actually encouraging those animals to move across your field, um, creating again, bat houses or bird houses that are going to be in an area, again, encouraging them to move across the field where you're putting trees to be able to have these things happening. There's so much that we can do within our farmscape to be able to really look at optimizing that eco-function so that it optimizes the intensity and the production on every acre that you have, as opposed to treating the whole farmscape universally, why don't we look at how we can precisely manage these areas to optimize their eco-function and their productivity? Cool. Shorty, uh, to my version of answering that question is I'm going to add to your question. Uh, Chris, you (laughs) talked about strip cropping a little bit, and that's something we want to play with a little bit maybe this year with uh, the Gateway Research Organization. Is there, you know, if you're putting a, you know, a crop, an annual crop into a perennial pasture, right? So we're going to leave part of the pasture and then put put some strips of crop within it. Is there? We're going to experiment with widths, right? At you know, at, at how how wide can your width be before you you know your mycorrhizae fungi can get underneath that annual crop and keep you know keep uh, interacting with it? Is it you know every couple of for lack of a better term, cultivator shovels, or is it every width of a cedar, or you know, how wide do you think we could get away with? Like, if we're going to do an experiment, what what should we experiment with? So, so again, that's a that's a really interesting question because we do see, as I said, that, that you know the mycorrhizal fungi can grow for um, not just you know a couple of feet or a couple of of meters, but you can actually be growing um, through miles of, of landscape. And so it really is one of those things where the optimum distance between plants isn't necessarily, I think, dictated so much on the mycorrhizal network and what's happening below ground, because if the food is there and if the signals are there to trigger them to be with those plants, that's where it is that they're going to go. They're just looking to find out, find these optimum places to be able to go to. So I think that what I've seen with looking at managing strips is looking at um, the issues that the plants need to have. So uh, doing some things when we're trying to optimize some of these things, um, uh, working with a few producers that are basically uh, having some within their cropping, um, having some very wide row spacing so that they're not doing a lot of shading and can maximize the amount of uh, solar radiation that each individual plant can get. Um, That same thing goes for the strips where you have multiple different types of crops that may be growing, making sure that you're not shading out 
um, all of the plants that'll be there. There are some ways too. again, you know, I wouldn't necessarily like I said, stretch this for miles because they will, they will go there. But um, I would say that what you would want to do is, is maybe look at when you, when you're looking at something like this, where you're trying to do strip cropping, I would, I would give it maybe about two to four meters at most in the distance between them. So if there if there are some things that you could do with that, being able to to take a look at at those, that type of a spacing would be about the most that I would be looking at. My so kind of going to the the strip cropping on a personal on a personal note, my dad was doing some of this in Minnesota. My dad farms in southwestern Minnesota, and he was growing. He did uh, corn and soybeans because that's what you grow in in you know in the United States. <laughs> we'll not go there about all of the things the issues with that, but anyway, that's what you grow in the United States is corded soybeans. And um, so what he found was uh, he had a, he basically, the only planter he had was a six row planter. And so he had six six rows of uh, soybeans and six rows of corn. And that seemed to be a little bit too much of an issue again with the shading, that the corn was shading out too much of the, the soybeans. So they weren't able to optimize their growth from that standpoint and get enough, do enough photosynthesis to get enough carbon to go below ground and really feeding that system. Uh, I think that in in looking at that, um, you don't want to go too too much of a too many rows. Um, so like looking at a at a twelve row planter seems to be a little bit too many rows where you don't get the mycorrhizal fungi growing far enough into the center of the crops. So you could get the exchange between the plants that are in the center. It just doesn't seem that that 12 rows is a little bit too much of a distance between them. But then if you do, so I think an eight to 10 row type of a spacing in those strips, you would optimize your solar radiation. You wouldn't have as much shading for most of the the smaller stature plants that may be in, the, in, in one strip, that the taller stature plants are shading out too many of the smaller stature plants. So, you know, even if you don't do corn, soybeans and other plants that would be there, but it also isn't too much of a distance there too at 12 rows, you're, you're basically ending up having too much of a distance between the center. Um, for good exchange. Awesome. Thanks. So I I guess the reason why I want to do this experiment is, you know, in a garden setting, I can see this working really well because it's really close together and you can have the, the, you know, that contact underneath the other, the annual or the garden part. But on an industrial setting, I mean, we've got farmers out there with, you know, 40 or 50 foot pieces of equipment. It's got to be practical for them as well. So, um, I guess that's the the roadblock we've get, got to get around, right? If we've got to have, you know, five foot spacings, a lot of these guys are just going to shake their head and say, no way. So we got to figure out a way to make that, you know, applicable on the farm or else we're never going to get these guys to, you know, jump on board. So awesome. Is that good, yeah. Shorty? Yeah, perfectly. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. And next up we have Scott Gillespie. Okay, so I put in two questions, but I'll start with the first one <clears throat> is um, with uh, reducing nutrients or <clears throat> reducing inputs, the nitrogen, I can see how it would work because we get all our nitrogen back through the air. But as long as we're exporting meat or fruit or vegetables, we if we're not getting the sewage back or the manure back, we're eventually going to run out of nutrients, right? 
Like if it's not us, it'd be generations down the road. We're going to deplete the source, correct? So uh, there's a little bit of yes and no to that. Uh, you know, as you indicated, the the nitrogen, there's a lot of it in the air. There are ways to be able to deal with that. And when we're talking about uh, many of our micronutrients, again, there's a pretty good supply, even though it's not readily available. Our The mineral structure of our soil is giving us a really good supply of many of the other nutrients that are out there. It's just a matter of the microbial community being able to process that. So phosphorus has always been one of the, the nutrients that I, I've had some concern about. And phosphorus is, is one of those nutrients um, because it becomes so easily immobilized, it it run, they you run into a lot of issues on being able to have enough phosphorus availability. One of the things, so in a in a strictly closed system, in a strictly closed system that you would have, one of the things that you may very well have happening in that strictly closed system is that you would run out if you're not adding more, if we're not starting to apply, um, as you said, some sort of waste, whether it's manure or human waste or something on there to be able to put it in. One of the things that exists out there within the system that we're in is a lot of rhizodeposition from the air. So we actually have, and again, you know, going back to this dust storm that you went through in Pincher Creek, without even the major dust storms that you see, there are uh, so many nutrients that are actually in our air right now, not just the nitrogen that's there, but also all of those other elements that are part of the dust that is floating through our planet um, that we're, I think that we wouldn't really run into an issue where we would completely be able to mine it out. That being said, again, going back to phosphorus, I think that that would be the one element that I would see that we would have to start potentially adding back in some waste into the system. And again, we can do that in a lot of different ways, you know, having livestock be a part of the system and kind of even if the again, going back to that whole other thing about managing animals, if you're managing wildlife and you're managing birds and bats, I mean, that was bat guano used to be the fertilizer that fed the world. You know, those are being able to have that material from the insects and the um, bodies of all of these different organisms. As I mentioned, you know, sort of that necromass of, of the microbial community, but the, the necromass and, and waste from all of these organisms that are currently growing on our planet is really going to be a way in which we are continuing to, to reintroduce. The, the nutrients into the system, but I still go back to phosphorus. It does trouble me. And so That's, even though I, even though I keep going there and I'm like, yes, I can solve this and I can solve this and I can solve that. And I'm kind of like, yeah, phosphorus is just this thing that, that it's a noodle in my brain that just kind of keeps on, on going there and, and saying that, that it's got a, it's that, that little worm, I should say in my brain that keeps going, huh. But again, I think that we're going to get there where we're going to do it anyway, because one of the things that we have to do in the future for agriculture is we're going to have to be integrating a lot more animals into our, our crop production, not just uh, our forage 
production and not just our grain crop production, but also our um, produce production and um, nut and fruit tree production, all of that, we're going to start having to integrate more animals into that. And that's going to sort of automatically solve those issues before it becomes too much of a stressor. Okay. Yeah. And actually phosphorus is the the big one that I <clears throat> struggle with too, because it's always the toughest one to figure out how to make it work. So I can add to that. I can add to that. Okay. <laughs> um, we just got our soil test reports back from the Kara uh, lab. Very exciting. The one pasture that we have way too much phosphorus in now all of a sudden, uh, one of Chris's uh, soil principles is animal integration. Our pig pasture. Okay. When we're running down the list of all the different soil tests, um, you know, it was at 14 and at 10 and at 12 and at 11 and maybe 17. The pig pasture was at 80. So pigs have a lot of pee. <laughs> so animal integration, right? And, and I'm almost thinking, well, okay, I got to move the pigs now because that's too much pee. And they've been on there for maybe four years. So again, that animal integration, um, and that could be wildlife, right? In our, in our typical cropping uh, yeah. system now, we've you know pushed away, scared away, pushed away all the wildlife and the insects and the critters and, and the bats. Um, if we can get that back in there, even the trees, Right. Think about a, a tree in their root system, how, how deep it digs. Well, maybe that root system can reach down to an aquifer that's bringing nutrients from the Rocky Mountains. Right. And it can pull up a little bit of nutrients or the, the coyote that's walking across. And, you know, something it ate over there is, is now on your land. Right. I think we've, if we can get the biology in there, um, there was a um, show or a conference here a little while ago that the, the Western Canadian uh, grazing conference put on. Um, Joe Williams had a few slides up about the difference between the actual uh, nutrients in our soil and the available nutrients. I mean, the reason it's unavailable is because we have no soil biology, right? In traditional agriculture, as soon as you get the soil biology going, well, they can get it. So we, we have so much in there already. And I think nature always can solve that. So Yes, in our traditional agricultural exporting nutrients, exporting nutrients, exporting nutrients, we will eventually run out. But we need to get the animal integration in there and start building our biology, including above ground biology, gophers, mice, right? There's important parts to all of this diversity in our system. So um, my two bits as a farmer. I think I'll leave it at that because I've already used up the time, right? Awesome. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> if I could just follow up one, yep. one quick minute. So, you know, I think a, a lot of what you were saying is is really correct. And what we've what we found starting off is when we look at uh, fertilizer inputs, we've always known since we started applying fertilizer inputs. I mean, I said back guano fed the world. Even within that, uh, the fertilizer inputs that we would put on the soil, we've always known that their use efficiency is 50 percent or less meaning 50% or less of what you apply ends up in that crop plant that you're growing. And when the recommendations are made, that's already embedded in the equation. They don't tell you that, but that's embedded in the equation for what it is that you're, how the level that you're supposed to be applying. I believe that in actuality, because we've not, when we when we discovered that 50% or less was was what was going on, we didn't really look at that biological integration that, that 
Karen was mentioning. We didn't have that understanding of what's happening from biology. So uh, more recent, uh, uh, more recent evaluation has essentially indicated that it takes more nutrients, in particular nitrogen fertilizer, but all nutrients, it takes more today to produce a bushel of grain than it took in 1960. And we've also done research studies showing that things like mycorrhizal fungi working with a consortia of other organisms can supply up to uh, 80 to 90% of the nutrient needs that a plant has. So I think in reality that our use efficiency for fertilizer is more in the um, somewhere between about five to to 20% is the efficiency and not 50%, but the microbes made up for that loss. And so the reason that today it takes more fertilizer to produce a bushel of grain, and we see the same thing in animals, is it takes more forage now to to get um, the rate of gain than it took before. And we've gone through and done genetic evaluation. We've bred you know, plants and we've bred animals to be more efficient. So it's not the lack of efficiency on the side of the plants or the animals, it's the, the fact that the microbiology, the gut microbiome in the animals isn't functioning at its best efficiency to allow for the rate of grain and that the biology in the soil isn't functioning or isn't there in the levels it was previously before we had this high input system to compensate for that you know, 80 to 90% efficiency that happened previously. Chris, do you have links to the research studies? Like, is there anywhere we could find those? That's really interesting. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, I can I can share those with you. That'd be awesome. Okay, afterwards, that'd be great. Um, next up, we have Phil and Sarah. Lisa. Hi there. So I actually uh, I got two quick questions. Um, one of my first one, uh, I've been trying to figure out a way to add more diversity to my pasture, and I've been working with an agronomist. And, uh, of course, uh, he agrees with a lot of things like adding uh, clovers and alfalfa and things that are nitrogen fixtures. But when it came to adding diversity to the grasses, he told me that it would be pointless because we have uh, grasses already established that planting a diversity of grasses would be a waste of time. Uh, and I was just curious if this is true. And then I guess for uh, Dr. Nichols there, my other question is, do you know of any research that's gone into Terra Preta from the Amazon? Or is that kind of a thing we just said, that's so old, we don't know how it works and we give up on it? So to to address, uh, you're looking at adding diversity to your pastures. One of the things that in, in, in taking a look at the system, one of the things that we need to be looking at is not just how we could incorporate diversity with adding additional perennials, but also incorporating diversity with adding additional annuals to the system. And that allows us, it gives us a lot of flexibility. And in many cases, the annuals are actually acting as um, some nurse crops and can help to support the production of the perennials. So when you're trying to add diversity, sometimes it doesn't work within the system because the soil is out of balance. We've been doing some discussions um, 
with producers here in 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 the gray wooded areas in in Alberta as well as in the North Peace uh, country producers. And one of the things that we were looking at and looking at the soil health tests that they've had is looking at the carbon to nitrogen ratio. And one of the things that we're finding is that carbon to nitrogen ratio is too low. Uh, it's usually somewhere around uh, between 10 and uh, 13. And we really would like a carbon to nitrogen ratio that would be closer to 20. And so we need to be having more carbon, high carbon, low nitrogen plants. So even though some of our goals sometimes are to integrate more legumes, we're doing that sometimes for uh, our, our forage needs. And sometimes just because that's that's the way that we've been thinking about the system is we need to have more legumes. But in reality, trying to get that reduction in or, or trying to increase that carbon to nitrogen ratio so that you have more high carbon plants that are a part of the system can be a positive thing. And annuals can be a great way to be able to do that, to be incorporating that, because what we're wanting to do is increase the flow of carbon into that soil environment and trying to trigger uh, that activity. Because one of the things that happens with um, nitrogen fixation, both symbiotic and asymbiotic, is that there's a lot of, there are feedback loops. So when the nitrogen levels are too high in the soil, the bacteria that are doing that fixation, actually the enzymes won't function. There's a feedback loop that stops the enzyme from being able to function because those um, the nitrogen that is fixed, that nitrate nitrogen is toxic. It's a, it's a toxic chemical. It's toxic to all biological life, but you need it. That's the, that's the form that that the nitrogen is, is transformed into. And so you don't want to have a lot of nitrogen fixation going on when there isn't a nitrogen need and that nitrogen isn't taken up by the plant very readily and utilized and transformed into different compounds than staying in that nitrate form that's toxic. So that feedback loop, what it does is it stops the buildup of toxic nitrogen levels. And so even trying to put legumes into that operation, they may grow, they won't grow very well, but they may grow, but they're not fixing any nitrogen. So what we want to be doing is looking a lot at trying to help to balance out that system and working with the biology in order to be able to do that. So again, I think that there are, the bottom line with this is I would look into talking about putting in some annuals into the system to add some diversity. And also that allows for more options to be able to manage the system and looking at that impact on um, the production of legumes in your system. And I don't know, Steve, if you have follow up on that. Sure, I can add a little bit. Um, it's, it's the polyculture of roots. Okay, I mean, just adding more grasses of the same type of root system might not be the answer, but adding in you know, when, when I'm looking at doing a polyculture, I'm looking at, okay, I, I've got annuals and perennials, different types of root systems. I've got tap roots and I've got uh, creeping roots. I've got C4 plants and C3 plants. I, I mean, trying to get a mixture of these different types of root systems are going to feed a different type of uh, soil biology. So the more variety of, of different root systems, like I don't really care what the top of the plant is. Those annuals that, that Chris is talking about putting in, um, in my mind, because I'm setting it down as a, it, my, my goal is to become a perennial pasture. 
Okay, I'm not an annual cropper, so my, that's my goal. So keep that in context. Um, I put in those annuals because they replace the weeds, what people call weeds, right? I mean, look at barley or wheat or oats. Um, a weed comes in, it's very aggressive, uh, grows really quick, produces a seed, and leaves a lot of residue because nature's trying to heal the soil. Okay, that's what those plants are, right? They're great at it. But we just happen to be able to harvest the, the grain out of them and, and sell it off. But to me, those are weeds. So I'm putting in my weeds to cover the ground, leave that residue, which will help me get my water holding capacity, which, you know, those, those grass plants also put out a different type of sugar into the soil that really stimulate the, the soil biology. Um, so that's what I'm adding to the soil is, is I'm basically putting in the weeds. And the more variety of root systems, the better. And here I thought he direct seeded into pastures things like sunflowers because I think they look pretty and peas because I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so just much weeds. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have Josh Smith. Josh. Uh oh. Come talk to us about mushrooms and fungus. Hi there. I'm Josh. I'm originally from Seba Beach, Alberta, but I'm closer to uh, Busby these days. Uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to touch a little more on the, the mycorrhizal fungi. I mean, we always hear that word mycorrhizal fungi, mycorrhizal fungi, everybody kind of throws it around. But what are the specifics of that? Do you have specific species that we, you could recognize that we could see the results of uh, the mycorrhizal fungi on our land? And um, also the edges. I, I think that was really cool how you talked about that a little bit, kind of interspersing things. I mean, there's places down south here. Uh, you can see quarter section on quarter section. It's just straight grain canola for miles and miles. There's nothing else there. So there wouldn't be any mycorrhizal. That's dead zone, you know. Um, I know we have aspen trees around here. They're one of the most predominant in Alberta. And I like to see when the farmers leave a, a strip, right? I think it's good for wind protection, erosion in that. And it's not just uh, the aspen there. I mean, we got wild rose and, uh, you know, a lot of different grasses and things that are in those little uh, natural biomes. And uh, we get like Amanita muscaria, which is probably the most common uh, mushroom there is on the planet, and uh, as well as a lacenum, it's a red top, it's an edible bolete. So I was wondering if you knew a little bit more about those, and uh, yeah, just want to hear. Okay, um, so so uh, mycorrhizal fungi, um, there are different types of mycorrhizal fungi to begin with, and the ones that primarily we're talking about in agricultural systems are what are referred to as the arbuscular or vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and they are essentially endomycorrhizal fungi, so they actually penetrate through the root cell wall and grow up to close to the cell membrane. So the fungal wall can actually almost touch the, the cell membrane. And so you have very efficient exchange that's happening um, in that environment. And it's a very protected environment. You get very little loss of the nutrients and carbon that it is exchanged in that environment. The fungi that are gonna be producing a lot of the mushrooms you have those fungi, if they're a mycorrhizal species that also produces mushrooms, those are pre predominantly ectomycorrhizal fungi. And so they don't actually grow in and penetrate the root cell wall. 
they um, grow around the roots and the roots sort of change a little bit of their structure. It becomes, I can't really think of the, it looks to me sometimes it reminds me of a boomerang type of a shape that they have. Um, that, that the roots will have, and it's called a hardig net. And so the mycorrhizal fungi induce the roots to actually change their structure. And then the fungal hyphae sort of wraps itself around that structure. So again, it improves the efficiency of the exchange, but those ectomycorrhizal fungi don't penetrate through the cell wall and grow up to the cell membrane. So there still can be a little bit of loss of, of some of the nutrients and some of the, the carbon that they're trying to exchange in that environment because it's not so intimate of a relationship. There are also other types of mycorrhizal fungi. There are orchid mycorrhizal fungi. So orchids don't grow without mycorrhizal fungi. It's, a, it's an obligate relationship. That's what the roots of orchids are, are actually um, orchid mycorrhizal fungi. And um, you have uh, also iracoid mycorrhizal fungi. And so, but again, the ones that we're really looking at having a, a most functional role within our agricultural systems are predominantly going to be the endomycorrhizal fungi. But with the um, ash trees that you have, they can be uh, both ecto and endomycorrhizal fungi that can be growing with those ash trees. So you do have that ability to have both of those organisms as part of the system. One of the reasons why, too, we look a lot at the endomycorrhizal fungi is, one, because they do that up to the cell wall, and it improves the efficiency and reduces the loss of that exchange of nutrients and um, carbon. But the other thing is, is that those fungi produce uh, some biomolecules that help with creating soil aggregates. And one of the biomolecules they make is a substance called glomalin. It's a, it's a protein that actually helps to stabilize those soil aggregates. The ectomycorrhizal fungi and other fungi that are mushroom producing fungi, the basidiomycetes, those fungi uh, also produce a biomolecule that can help to stabilize aggregates, but it doesn't seem to be as um, stable and as resistant to decomposition as the glomalin. So they do form, help to form soil structure, but their role in helping with soil structure is a little bit less because of the rooting system. They're mostly associated with trees and not with our crop plants. And because of the rooting system of trees, they don't do that same level of structure formation with the aggregates that the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi do. In, in agricultural soils and in prairie soils, where most of the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi are found, you need to have the porosity that is created by those soil aggregates, by that shape that you have, the, the aggregates not being able to fit exactly close together, which allows for those different structural shapes and pores to be created. Whereas for the trees, because of their rooting system, they're helping to drive some of their own porosity. So they don't need to have the aggregates be as stabilized. Awesome, thanks. Oh, uh, okay, I, go ahead, I just wanted to follow up a little more. So there's also saprophytic fungi as well, right? So you're gonna get, um, say like an agaricus, which will grow right out of the, uh, which is also coprophyllus, it grows right out of the dung, right? Yep. And then there's uh, puffballs as well, and I believe morels. Um, they say morels are, potentially both saprophytic as well as mycorrhizal, right? And I notice, especially in the cow pastures, we find the morels right along the cow trails, you know, 
right where the damaged and, and turned up uh, animal impact is, right? That's where they seem to rush to that area. We get them in May here. Yeah. So. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, yes, um, and many of the ectomycorrhizal fungi can grow both mycorrhizally and saprophytically, so they can actually be saprophytes, as you said, and um, the endomycorrhizal fungi are obligate biotropes. They actually need to be having a living plant in order to be able to grow, and they don't really have a saprophytic phase. So um, though the ectomycorrhizal fungi can do that saprophytic action, and you know what I was talking about, too, with like the the whole idea of uh, cattle manure is it's not just and with grazing it's not just where that animal deposits the manure but then you have that impact that goes across the larger ecosystem and the fungi can be a big part of being able to move and spread that impact um, with the spores that they're distributing as well as uh, with the, their growth within that system. So the largest organisms in the world are, are fungi, they're microscopic. And so we need to be able to be paying attention to the, the fact that these organisms exist and are important to our systems. Thank you. I have two comments to add to that. One, uh, if anybody wants to talk about mushrooms, talk to Josh. He knows a whole <laughs> bunch about mushrooms. He's way over my head when he's starting to talk about mushrooms in the pasture. That's awesome. Number two, Chris, I believe you told me uh, a year or two ago that you were working on a type of system, a dye or something that uh, you know a, a farmer could use to determine if he has mycorrhizae fungi in his soil. How's that going or so so yes, um, I do I do have that. Uh, what I was trying to do is really see if you needed a microscope to be able to do the evaluation and um, there are some magnifiers that you can attach to uh, smart devices that can help to compensate for the fact of not buying a microscope. But uh, the as far as the dyeing procedure is concerned, um, I've got that written up in a non-technical format. And um, I will share that with, with all of you as well. I'll share the link for that with all of you. Um, in addition to with um, being able, so what this is, is it's a um, using household chemicals to stain your roots to look for the presence of the uh, endomycorrhizal fungi within your roots so that you're able to see if they're, they're present or not. And um, I'll also uh, send you a link, Amber, as well to a non-technical procedure for people to uh, be able to separate out their soil aggregates and measure their aggregate stability and look at um, if they have stabilized aggregates or not. And so I've got two non-technical methodologies now that are out there. Very cool. We were at a workshop with Chris that was just before shutdown, I think, um, lockdown last year. And yeah, I have to say, if you can get Chris to yourself for a couple of days, <laughs> it's fantastic. That's You need that's a why lot I of alcohol if you want to get Chris with you for a couple of days. <laughs> well, Chris, that's why I love you so much. You're, you're coming up with redneck tape measures that we can measure our soil with. That's, that's my, that's right up my alleyway there. So thank you very much. Uh, next up we have Kelly Olson. Kelly. Kel Kelly was a past speaker on our uh, show. I have a question while we wait for Kelly to come up. Is it fungi or fungi? Um, it depends on how English you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's Kelly. Okay. Um, yeah, the question I had you in your uh, pyramid there, there was low disturbance or minimal disturbance. Uh, just curious about when you think disturbance might be acceptable and what type of disturbance? So, yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, the reason that I said, you know, the reduced or, or no disturbance and really focusing more on the reduced is that disturbance can be a tool that we could use to help to manage um, issues that we might be having uh, with um, issues in particular with weeds or if you want to terminate a particular crop that you have or terminate a perennial in, in a pasture system. You could actually utilize grazing at a, at an at an intensity and utilizing animal hoof traffic to cause enough disturbance to set back that perennial so that you can have a, the the competition with the annual allowing for that annual to thrive. So one of the things that I've been working with people on doing is how do I terminate a perennial pasture without an herbicide and without tillage and utilizing an animal to be able to do that. It's a longer term type of a process because usually you have to have, uh, I think of it kind of like a termination year. So you're gonna start the the fall prior to this year that you're working with the termination. It doesn't mean that you can't get something off of that uh, field while you're doing that termination, but the productivity is, is definitely gonna take a hit. But essentially you would um, graze uh, very intensely um, in on, on the perennial forage in the fall as late as you possibly can so that you're getting it under a lot of stress and making it more difficult for it to be able to thrive in um, the, the next year, and then graze it again intensely in the spring, and then plant, plant an annual and have that annual be growing and managing with, with grazing or mowing as you need to, to keep that perennial set back. And then, you know, if you're, if you're lucky enough, you can harvest your get a little bit of a harvest out of that annual, but if nothing else, the grazing allows you to have a little bit of a financial gain because you, you are um, grazing animals in that process. So in, in those cases, again, managing, helping to terminate a perennial, the same thing can be utilized in the same way if you want to terminate or um, remove various types of weeds that you might have. If you have an area in your pasture or an area on your crop on your cropland that has a major weed issue, utilizing animals as a tool to be able to do enough disturbance. And in those cases, you're wanting to have disturbance again, that's not just the grazing and the eating of the plant material, but also the hoof traffic. So having a, a um, very high density of, of animals on in that particular area so that you've got that disturbance from the hoof traffic. Um, one of the other things I've worked with producers on with this type of a disturbance is again, using the animals and the hoof traffic to actually act a little bit like a, a, a surface tillage tool that can help you to be able to improve the uh, soil to seed contact. So you could broadcast seed and then, you know, without using, so, you know, sort of a zero till type of an operation, broadcast the seed and then have the animals go over that area in order to do a little bit of disturbance and be able to get some good seed to soil contact. 
And the final thing is, is oftentimes in some of our pasture systems, we get a very um, thick duff layer that you might be getting. And that is especially if you start to get um, a lot of uh, cool season tame grasses that are coming into that pasture area or some invasives, those plants will oftentimes have a higher concentration of suberins in their leaves and it's more like a wax. And so in that duff layer, sometimes you can have very poor infiltration rates in your pastures because you have sort of this waxy sealing that has happened with the plant tissue that's in that duff layer. And then again, making the animals have that high density that you would have with that hoof traffic that's doing a lot of disturbance to the soil surface and breaking up that plant material so that you're then going to be able to improve your infiltration rates. So one of the things, again, that we need to be thinking about with these principles is also thinking about the tools that we put into place. And I think of the animals, whether it's wild animals or um, animals, livestock that you have, or again, the birds and bats or anything like that, all of those are tools that we can put into place and we can use them as tools that can temporarily enhance production, or we can use them as tools that may be partially destructive when we need to have some destruction that's happening. But that destruction that's happening from a biological perspective from an animal is going to be far better for the system than if we're using a chemical or mechanical tool. So when we're talking about disturbance, if you need disturbance, try and figure out a way to have a biological level of disturbance rather than a mechanical or chemical. I, I, okay, I can see what you're saying. I, I would be concerned about the, you know, maybe the animal performance. You're trying to use them to do the disturbance. So maybe you'd have to do some supplementary feeding or whatever. Yeah, and and that is it's it's a very um, valid concern. And everything when when we're looking at soil health, this is it's about carbon and energy flowing, the resources being able to flow through all of the organisms that are part of the system. And everything is a trade-off analysis. So you have to look at, at what you need to do to be able to manage your system and perform well, but at the same time to try and keep carbon flows flowing through as many different species as possible. So in some cases, the question becomes, am I doing this for the health of the soil or am I doing this for the health of the animal or for the health of the, the plant that I'm growing? And how can I balance those th two things out? In reality, what we're trying to do in agriculture, growing crops and having the plants and animals perform the way that they do is really an unnatural act. That isn't the way that the animals want to act nor is it the way especially the plants want to act. Plants do not want to produce a whole lot of progeny. They don't want to produce a whole lot of seed. That's not what they do. That's not how they normally function. Animals are also, they don't want to have the, the levels of the rate of gain that it is that we're looking at. So we're, we're doing something that really truly is unnatural, but we're trying to utilize natural and biological tools to do that. And because of that, because it is an unnatural act, it does have these trade-off analyses. We have to look at cost-benefit ratios. What's going to be happening here? How do I look at being able to create a system that's going to give me the levels of performance and the levels of production that I need to have, but then at the same time, 
be able to regenerate and grow the soil. Hey, good. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Kelly, when I heard your question, uh, what popped out at me is what is the definition of minimum till? And that's <laughs> something that's bothered me for a long time. It, it comes down to perspective. What is normal? Right. When I, I know guys that say, well, we're minimum till, right? They only till three times a year. Right. To me, that's not minimum till, but in their mind, they are minimal till. The, uh, the organic farm that we went to, Chris, when you came out a couple of years ago, um, I would consider him minimal till. The field that we were on that day was completely cultivated. But I, I also happen to know that he does seven years of perennial and then does two years of organic grain. Right. So in my mind, two years out of nine, that to me is minimal till. So, you know, it depends where you come from. So that definition of minimal till, I mean, it can, you know, uh, vary widely depending on who you're talking to. So I'd like to see that, you know, once in a while having some tillage disturbance, uh, not, you know, three or four times a year. To me, that's maximum till. But my two cents. Next up, we have Daniel, and I think his question is really interesting. It goes back into this tillage. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say to this. Daniel, are you ready? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so we we do perennial um, for a, a hay field, kind of in our rotation. We'll keep it in for about three to four years and then terminate it. We've done both plowing and under, and we've done chemical control with <clears throat> glyphosate. Just kind of wondering what is the less yeah what's the lesser of both evils i guess also um, what we're thinking of doing for this year um is plowing down that alfalfa or, or perennial past or perennial hayfield instead of taking a second cut we're going to plow it down with that green material all there and just see if that kind of kickstarts the microbial activity so just kind of wanted your thoughts on if that's a good idea and and what your expertise would have us do. You know, again, it, what what I try and say is is I want to try and figure out a way to have a biological solution before I put in a chemical or mechanical solution. And part of this I, I again going back to nature a little bit, nature has has done this in a way that is advantageous to me. So one of the things that we look at is um, depending on the perennials that it is that you're growing in, in hay pastures where you have uh, a lot of alfalfa. And if your alfalfa is sort of the dominant plant that is in there, nature did a unique thing for alfalfa and it works mostly with alfalfa. It does raise an issue with some legumes, but mostly it's with alfalfa because alfalfa gets to be very aggressive. But alfalfa is very highly dependent upon the um, rhizobium bacteria that fix nitrogen. And one of the things that nature has done is nature created a bacteriophage, essentially a virus against bacteria that will terminate the rhizobium bacteria. So one of the things that we find in alfalfa dominated pastures and hayland is if after about somewhere between three to five years, the alfalfa starts to kind of self-terminate and it's because of that bacteriophage that has killed off 
um, the rhizobium bacteria. It's a short-lived virus, so you can come back in and replant with alfalfa um, after taking a year off or so. But if you want to be looking at, again, planning a termination, trying to plan around when the, the plants, the perennials that you're looking to terminate are going to be weakest. So if you're looking at terminating alfalfa, trying to plan around when this bacteriophage may be having the greatest level of impact so that as you're starting to do a termination, again, if you can use the animals to manage the perennial in late in the, in the growing season, um, and then get that perennial stressed at that time and then graze it again early in the spring, that can be sort of an, a little bit of contributing to the stress that's going to reduce the production of that perennial and allow for some termination where you could start putting it into annual production. If you are going to be looking at utilizing tillage or a chemical burn down, because I think that's part of the heart of your question is which is which is worse uh, for the system. And it's a it's a difficult thing to be able to know for sure. And part of the reason is, is because our knowledge on the impact of the herbicides on the microbial community is continuing to grow and we don't really understand everything that's happening with utilizing the herbicides and it depends too on the type of herbicide that you're using you know the roundup um glyphosate as a as an herbicide glyphosate was originally designed as an antimicrobial so we do know that it, it's going to kill microbial populations the amount of microbial populations that it kills and the that impact is is somewhat variable and not well understood. And most of that is because we don't know enough about the diversity of the microbes that exist. And so oftentimes when they do those studies, what they'll see is that they apply an herbicide and then they actually see that it stimulates microbial activity. But what it's doing is it killed a bunch of organisms and then it stimulated the growth of some of the saprophytes that are now eating the dead organisms that it killed. But because they're not looking at which organisms are growing, it's just that we've got greater levels of respiration that indicate that we've got more organisms growing. That becomes, you know, the thing that they say is it doesn't hurt them because obviously their populations are growing. And it's, again, we don't know which populations got impacted most negatively by the use of that. So the way that I try and look at it is, um, thinking about that as a factor, and there's so many unknowns in the use of herbicides, I, I would like to see us eliminate the use of herbicides because of those unknowns and the factors that we don't fully understand. Um, when it comes to tillage and the tillage impact, one of the things that I think we need to be looking at with tillage impact is a little bit going back to what Steve was talking about with minimum till, you have to look at the tillage impact from uh, Ray Archuleta came up with this acronym. He doesn't use it for tillage, but but I use it for tillage, and it's the the FIST acronym, and it's the frequency, intensity, scale, and timing. So, how many tillage passes are you going to do? How often are you going to be doing those tillage passes? 
So, you know, the number, uh, the frequency of the tillage passes, the timing in, in relationship to the activity and the growth of the microbial populations. There are times of the year when you can have more of an impact and times of the year when you can have less of an impact on the microbial community, depending on where it's at in those growth phases. The uh, intensity and the scale are looking at, again, how much of the soil are you disturbing with the types of tillage that you're doing. So when I think about tillage and, and those types of aspects, I think of myself as saying, okay, every tillage event that happens possibly can destroy aggregates where me as a microbe live. So it will it will put a wrecking ball through my home. It may or may not. You know, I'm going to flip the dice every, you know, roll the dice. And every time, you know, I may or may not get my habitat destroyed. But if you do it a whole lot, if you do it very frequently and you do it at a scale and intensity that really disturbs a lot of the soil volume itself, that is going to improve the odds that you're going to destroy my home. So now I have to put energy into rebuilding my home. On top of that, doing tillage may actually damage part of my body. So now I have to put energy into repairing my body. And if I have to continuously put energy into repairing my body and rebuilding my home, and I have to do that over and over and over and over and over again, I have no time to do the true functions that I'm in the soil to do, which is help with nutrient cycling, help with um, creating porosity for good aeration and water movement, help with pest or disease management, all of these functions that I could do, but I'm spending my whole entire time responding to tillage. So when we're thinking about these tools, all of them, again, it's that whole idea of a trade-off analysis. It's gonna have an impact, how often do I want it to have that impact and what level of impact do I want to have? And the unknowns with herbicides do continue to scare me because I just don't know that level of impact. I can measure it a little bit better with tillage and have a little bit more control over what's happening. Perfect. Yeah, thanks. I've been in that debate a couple times, Daniel. Um, tillage versus chemical, like which is which is worse? I mean, I think your your comment was which was more bad. Just looking at it from my point of view. Tillage damages uh, our water cycle. It breaks up the mycorrhizae fungi, which are so important. I, I was I learned uh, quite a few years ago that it can take like three or four months to uh, for a, a network of mycorrhizae fungi to reestablish itself to full functioning again. Right, that's our whole growing season. So tillage once in a while, okay, we we might have to get away with that. Um, on the other side of it, uh, chemicals. Uh, I know there's a type of uh, bacteria that are, uh, I believe they're litrotrophs, right? They, they're pollutant degradant. They, they degrade poisons, right? We put a lot of poisons out there, but I know there's bacteria that, that break that down and, and can get rid of that. Um, so they're out there working for us if we can, if we can keep them in our system. Again, uh, one of the big concerns with, with chemicals is our, you know, the runoff and it's going into our water systems and into our streams. And, and I look back and going, well, if we had a healthy water cycle, Right. We wouldn't be having runoff and we wouldn't be having, you know, this this issue with the water cycle. It wouldn't be taking the chemicals to where we don't want them. And that might give these litrotrophs time to break down those chemicals. So if I had to say which, you know, which is better, which is worse, you know, I would rather have once in a while, maybe a chemical treatment than to be busting up our our so, our soil armor and breaking that up and and damaging the water cycle. But I mean, 
obviously uh, a lot of you know I haven't used any chemicals or any fertilizers on my land for 20 years. That being said, if someone came to me, okay, we have to, you know, you know, we're going to take this piece of land and we're going to turn it into a crop and I had no choice of it, I would probably want to desiccate it off and zero till into it. Right? I don't want to break up that soil armor. That's so important for for my operation. Like I said, that being said, I, I that's not something that I would do on my own. So um, my two cents. So we are over time. That being said, Chris, could we keep you for one more question? And then we've had special requests for you to do the thing. <laughs> and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and it wasn't even just from me this time. <laughs> so is that okay? Okay. Um, so the next question is from Tom and I know he's been very eager to get this out. So Tom, are you ready to go? I am. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Uh, Amber didn't, Amber didn't want to put the video on cause she finds I'm hideous, but, uh, anyways, so I'm going to say a, a comment that I'm going to get shit from Steve tomorrow, but, um, I'm kind of uh, disillusioned that here we are. Uh, Steve is a fantastic grazer. We're on a, a grazing site and we're talking so much about farming. And I would like to bring it back to cattle because, or not to cattle, to livestock. Because what I've heard tonight is livestock has been an afterthought and a tool to help uh, farm better. Uh, so anyways, my question to you, um, Chris, is... Could you comment on the the detriment of letting grass go uh, mature, and then trying to to feed the biology with um, uh, with mature mature grass, mature um, uh, roots? Uh, thanks, Tom. And I, I I apologize because I get in trouble frequently because I talk about animals as being a tool. And, you know, some people don't think that that's that's giving the animals all the credit that they're due. And I know Actually, that I have. You know what? It's not so much because I think of them as a tool as well, but as a tool for grazing, not as a tool for farming. There's a and in my mind, there's a difference. And we uh, what I find is that we tend to. Uh, focus on farming and uh, grazing it's kind of like uh, anybody can graze uh, but not anybody can graze uh, to to get a, a lot of production and and make your land economical yes um so so and i appreciate that and and again you know i like i said sometimes i get myself in trouble because i say things and and i i take the perspective of fungus too often and too far um I, I get in trouble with my my own family for those things. So <laughs> we'll not go there. But when we're looking at grazing, I think that you bring up some very good points and looking at grazing where we are, again, I'm looking at regenerating the soil and grazing is a really good component of being able to regenerate the soil. When I look at regenerating the soil, it goes back to how soil originated and soil originated through the interactions of what was sort of the precursor to mycorrhizal fungi and the precursor to, and the precursor to plants, a photosynthetic bacterium, and how they started working together. But 
just looking at that that sort of origin of soil itself, when we didn't have soil and we had mineral rock and not really the land that it is that we see today, when we're talking about sort of regenerating, although I think it's important for us to focus a little bit on that original relationship between the plants and the microbial community, much of what has happened in being able to generate soil and keep soil generating on um, the large landscape that we have, the large amount of land that we have between aquatic areas is due to the benefits of the animals and the benefits that have been provided by the animals. So how they contributed this, the whole idea when I oftentimes talk about regenerating the soil, it is integrating microbes and plants and animals because they've all evolved together and all worked together to create the soil that, that we've had on, on the surface of this planet. So it is important to be able to have them as a part of that structure. When we're talking about grazing and maturity of the plants, one of the things and one of the great things about having the animal integration is that we're going to have the animals do the grazing at the time periods that aren't just for the benefit of the animal, but at the time periods that are actually also for the benefit of the soil and the carbon flow. And what I mean by this is the plants are exuding, they're exuding sugars into the soil for much of their vegetative growth phase. But they have, they increase that exudation as they're starting to go into the reproductive phase. So when they're starting to get mature, they're going to start to reallocate sugar, reallocate those exudates, reallocate the sugars from going below ground to going above ground into um, the, the floral parts of the plant. And so that changes now how much carbon can flow into the soil and, and, and be able to feed that sort of liquid carbon cycle that we're looking for. And so if we're keeping the plants mostly in that vegetative growth phase at that point, close to where it's starting to go into the reproductive phase, and that's when we do our grazing, that's going to help us to continuously keep cycling carbon below ground because the plant is going to respond to that grazing by giving off more sugars and trying to get the nutrients that it needs to be able to regrow. And instead of allocating nutrients above to the floral parts, it's keeping the cycling going between the green foliar tissue and the roots. And it's keeping that movement happening where the carbon's going below ground and nutrients are coming up out of the soil. So I think that grazing from that standpoint, looking at, again, how we can manage our forages so that we keep that liquid carbon flowing is a really important component to how we think about going about grazing. And when we're looking to another important component to the grazing management is, um, you know, the, the not just from the plant life cycle, but also from the animal's life cycle and the different types of animals that you may have grazing in on the forages at different times. So one of the things that, you know, I like people, I like um, 
livestock producers to be thinking about is you don't really think about your uh, ranch as being, you have areas on your ranch that are your hay pastures and you have areas on your ranch that are your um, spring pastures and you have your, your winter pasture and you have your calving pasture and you have all of these types of things, but it's actually your landscape, your farmscape, your ranch, that is that whole entire thing. And so you're going to be moving those around because one of the things that we can do with grazing is keep what we're trying to do is keep nature in check. And we're trying to keep it sort of off balance a little bit so that it constantly has to be functioning at a higher level of efficiency all the time. And that's what we're trying to do with grazing operations and how we're going to be changing the grazing management is really to increase that carbon flow. And I think that we can do that by getting that with the focus on how we're managing grazing and what animals we're putting into different places at different times and keeping that flow going forward. Well, cool, great answer. Excellent. Instead of answering um, on my part, I'm going to kind of recap that. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, but the bottom of your pyramid is maximizing photosynthesis and carbon flow. So to do that, I mean, to be capturing sunlight, the, the plants have to be in photosynthesis, right? If we let them go to ma maturity, they get out of that. If we graze them right off to the ground all the time, they're not capturing photosynthesis. So if we want to build soil, the fastest we have to keep those plants in the vegetative state, kind of in the middle by using animals to, you know, to graze and let it grow, graze and let it grow. So that will build soil faster. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Okay, now Chris, it's time to do the thing because we had this requested so that it's on the podcast. <laughs> Can you do the thing? So the thing, and I'm assuming that the thing is, is, is the, the five organisms thing. The thing, yeah. The thing, yeah. So in in looking at this, the thing that the thing that's the thing that that really gets me most excited and gets me up um, every morning and excited about all of this is these integrations that we're talking about. And so one of the most exciting things that we've seen from a research standpoint is this idea of plant to plant nutrient exchange. And so we're going to talk about a specific example of this, where we're going to have five different organisms. We're going to have uh, two plants, a legume plant and a non-legume plant. And we are going to have two bacteria, the nitrogen-fixing bacteria that's associated with the legume plant. And we're going to have what's called a phosphate-solubilizing bacteria. And then you're going to have the mycorrhizal fungi. So we've got five organisms that are going to be involved in this relationship. Now, what ends up happening is that the non-legume plant creates a relationship with the mycorrhizal fungi and the non-legume plant basically through the exudates, through this carbon language, tells the mycorrhizal fungi, hey, go out there in the soil and get me nitrogen and phosphorus. The mycorrhizal fungus looks back at what it's doing and it actually grows into the roots of the non-legume plant, but it's also growing into the roots of the legume plant. It seems to have some nitrogen there. And in addition, there are these phosphate solubilizing bacteria that live on the hyphae of the mycorrhizal fungi. And so it's got access to 
to phosphorus as well. So it tells the non-legging plant, yeah, I can do that for you. All you have to do is give me some carbon, give me some sugar in order to be able to pay for those nutrients. And I'll be able to go out there and get that easy for you. So the non-legging plant gives the mycorrhizal fungus some carbon, some sugar, and the mycorrhizal fungus gives some of that sugar to the phosphate solubilizing bacteria. The phosphate solubilizing bacteria create the enzymes from those sugars to be able to release the phosphorus. The phosphorus then goes into the mycorrhizal fungi. The mycorrhizal fungi can take some of that phosphorus and it gives it to the non-legging plant. The mycorrhizal fungus also goes over to the legging plant. It gives it some phosphorus, but then it says, you know, could you also give me some nitrogen in order for me to be able to give that nitrogen to the non-legging plant? The mycorrhizal fungus or the non-legging or the legging plant says to the mycorrhizal fungus, yeah, I can do that. All I have to do is talk to my rhizobium bacteria to have them make more nitrogen so that I have nitrogen for my needs and then I can give some nitrogen to you and you can give some of that nitrogen to the non-legging plant. The mycorrhizal fungus says, okay, that's a cool deal. I can I can take that. Hey, by the way, could you also give me a little bit of sugar so that I can give that to the phosphate solubilizing bacteria so that they can solubilize phosphate so that I can give some of that phosphate to you? And the legume plant says, yeah, that's a really cool idea. I, I, I'll take that deal. So the, micro, or the legume plant then goes and talks to the rhizobium bacteria and it says to the rhizobium bacteria, can you go and fix more nitrogen for me in order to be able so that I can have the nitrogen that I need and then I can give the nitrogen to the mycorrhizal fungus and the mycorrhizal fungus can give that nitrogen into the non-legume plant. The rhizobium bacteria says, I can do that. However, the issue is, is that it takes a lot of energy for me to be able to fix nitrogen. And so what I need to do is I need to have a little bit more phosphorus so that I can have energy. How energy works on a cellular level is that you have what's called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And what happens with ATP is one of the phosphate groups gets ripped off and it becomes ADP, adenosine diphosphate. And when that phosphate group gets ripped off, electrons are released. And as the electrons pass through a membrane, they provide energy that fires the cell so that I now have the energy to be able to fix nitrogen. And I need to have, I can't take the phosphate that got ripped off and put that back onto the ADP and make that ATP again. I need to have new phosphate come in in order for me to be able to do this. So you need to continue to give me more phosphate. If I need to make more nitrogen for you, I need more phosphate. So the legume plant goes to the mycorrhizal fungus and it says, okay, if you need to have more nitrogen, I need you to be able to get me more phosphate in order for me to be able to give that phosphate to the rhizobium bacteria so the rhizobium bacteria can do more nitrogen fixation. The nitrogen can then go into the legume plant. The legume plant can then give that nitrogen to the mycorrhizal fungus so that the nitrogen can then go into the non-legume plant. Now, the uh, mycorrhizal fungus says, okay, I can do that, but you have to give me more sugar so that I can give that to the phosphate solubilizing bacteria so that I can get enough phosphate in order to be able to do this. And all of a the sudden, there's a whole bunch of sugar that's going into the phosphate solubilizing bacteria and the phosphate solubilizing bacteria are doing as much phosphate solubilization as they possibly can. And they're putting a whole bunch of phosphate into the mycorrhizal fungal hyphae. And there's nitrogen coming from the legume plant that's trying to get into the non-legume plant. And you have this traffic jam that occurs. And so the mycorrhizal fungus goes back to the non-legume plant and it says, all right, I've got this issue issue going on here where I can't be able to supply you with enough nitrogen and phosphorus because I have a traffic jam of getting enough phosphorus so that for my phosphate solubilizing material so that I can give that to the legume plant so the legume plant can give that to the rhizobium bacteria so the rhizobium bacteria can fix enough nitrogen so that I have nitrogen to give to you. And so the non-legume plant says to the mycorrhizal fungus, here's the deal. I can give you the secret code to phosphate solubilization so that you can actually be able to hold more phosphate in your fungal hyphae and that way you'll have enough phosphate to be able to give that to me and enough phosphate to be able to give that to the legume plant. So the legume plant can give that phosphate to the rhizobium bacteria. The rhizobium bacteria can fix enough nitrogen so that that nitrogen can then go into the legume plant and the, the legume plant can give some of that nitrogen to the mycorrhizal fungus and the nitrogen can then go to the non-legume plant. And everybody has phosphate too from the phosphate solubilizing bacteria that got fed sugars from both the legume plant and the non-legume plant. 
all of this is happening simultaneously. It's, it's all occurring that fast in that system where you're getting these plant-to-plant nutrient exchanges. And this is just one example of what we have addressing the nitrogen and phosphorus needs. So there is an incredible amount of potential that we can do, again, going back to the question about running out of nutrients, that we could address by working with the microbial community and having them work in these complex relationships. There's the thing. I'm so excited that this is going to be on podcast because maybe I'll be able to understand more than like one thirty <laughs> parts of this. I'll, I'll listen to it over and over again. Maybe I'll get through more than more than an eighth. <laughs> maybe. We will officially close this out now. Thank you very much for everybody uh, uh, who showed up. Uh, we're not going to boot you off by any means. We're going to do the after networking networking now. And if you're listening to the podcast, sorry about your luck. You missed it. Um, but thank you very much to our sponsors, the Gateway Research Organization, who uh, that's their platform that we're using, and uh, the Grey Wooded Forge Association as well are helping to uh, cover sponsor uh, speaker fees and things like that. So thank you very much for everybody coming out. 